0: this text in preparation for the sermon, um, it was harder. I, I've been looking forward to this Sunday because I love that passage. And then as I read the text, God said, well, wait a second. What about this? And so we'll, we'll talk about my, my struggle because I'm just going to tell you what I went through in the past couple weeks over this. But anyway, here we go. First Samuel 121 to 2.11. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son Until she had weaned him. And after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with the three year old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed the bows of the warriors are broken but those who stumbled are armed with strength those who were full hire themselves out for food but those who were hungry hunger no more she who was barren has borne seven children but she who has had many sons pines away the lord brings death and makes alive he brings down to the grave and raises up the lord sends poverty and wealth he humbles and he exalts he raises the poor from the dust And lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and he has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli, the priest. Now, like I said, I've been looking forward to this text because I love that prayer in chapter 2. I'll tell you more about that. But as I really settled down to read and study it over the past several weeks as I was preparing for today, I found it to be a text that unsettles us. It's a text that, that unsettles us a bit because it's, it's so um, different than what we would expect. Now, I grew up in Sunday school hearing this story about Hannah and Samuel, and Samuel being brought as a young child to serve in the temple, right? But, but So it was very familiar, and if you've heard it over and over, it's probably really familiar to you too, this whole story. But as I started reading it, I tried to read it from the perspective of someone in our culture living in Hope, B.C. who's never heard this story before. Imagine as if you've never heard it Before There's a woman who's barren. She hasn't had a child. She's mocked by the other wife and and just ridiculed over and over. She prays to God. She gets a son only to leave him at probably age three to work at the temple. And then she goes away rejoicing. Now, just, just take your Sunday school ears off and hear that from the cultural standpoint. This is a weird story. A mother who gives away her son. You know, if you look back at chapter 1 in verse 6 and 7, it says her rival kept provoking her. That she would, Jake told us that the Hebrew term there is she thundered at Hannah. It was just this constant barrage of criticism and demeaning talk and mocking that she had to live with. And in verse 10, she gets up in bitterness of soul, it says, to go and pray to the Lord. And, and, and Eli, the priest, thinks she's drunk because of the way she's acting. And she says in chapter 1, 15, and 16, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And then God hears her. She goes home. She doesn't know that what's going to happen, but she does get pregnant. She gives birth to this son only to wean the child and give him away. Probably, like I say, when he's around, maybe just a little under three years old, and giving him to Eli at the temple. Now, if you've read this story before, you also know Eli already had two sons of his own who were not the fine, upstanding young men of the community. They were stealing from the sacrifices. They were sleeping with the women who worked at the entrance to to the tent of meeting, In fact, they were so evil that the people around came and complained how bad they were. And she's taking her three-year-old son, leaving him in the care of the priest. And why? It says in chapter 2, verse 11, the boy ministered before the Lord. That word ministry is the word for service. And, And if you're from our culture today, you have to say, is this spiritual child labor? Right? He's three years old. And he's already starting to work. The Greek version of the Old Testament for that ministered uses a word that we see also in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. So she's left her son Samuel at three to begin working in the temple, performing his religious duties. Now, that's hard to believe when you look at what three-year-olds in our world do. Some of them are sitting over there right now. They're not working. We haven't asked them to take up the offering today, right? But it's, it's just a different kind of concept. Now, granted, in that culture, childhood was a bit different. But this story that I heard over and over in Sunday school, when I hear it today and think of it from the way our world would see this, it's, it's, it gives me a different perspective. And these are really good questions, I think, for people to ask of the text. They help us to see it in a different light. It gets even more unsettling when they see the mom give the child away, and then as she leaves, she is rejoicing. Right? You can see leaving your child there and being devastated by doing it, but she goes away rejoicing. How is that even possible? We, we don't like to lose things, right? I'm taking a key from Jake here. I need a volunteer today. If I got a volunteer? And it's got something to do with this, if somebody wants to volunteer. Okay, uh, um, Griffin, come on up, Griffin. But here's, here, before you come, there's a condition. I'm going to give you this, but then you have to do what I ask you to do. And it's nothing embarrassing, it's nothing big, it's not, you're not going to have to sing or do a solo or anything, but for you to get this, you have to do the thing that I ask you to do. Are you willing to do that? Yeah. Okay, come on up, Griffin. All right. Here this is. Now, the one thing I want to ask you to do is I want you to take it and give it away to somebody that you don't even know. (laughs) Now, there you go. Good job. Okay, here you go, Griffin. There you go. Right? The, The sense of loss in that moment that Griffin, it's tiny. It's a chocolate bar, right? He'll probably have another one. He got another one. But the sense of loss was epitomized by the look on my wife's face. Who's like, how dare you put Griffin through that? You give him a chocolate bar. You make him give it away. Right? He needs to learn that. Right? He needs to learn that. <laughs> Says his father, right? The funny thing was, like, we feel lost because Griffin's here. He's got this thing he wanted, and he has to give it to somebody who doesn't. If he feels that way, how can she be rejoicing over giving her son away? You know, I came across a quote this week. Christine found it actually by Charlotte Bronte. And she says, There is, I am convinced, no picture that conveys in all its dreadfulness a vision of sorrow, despairing, remediless, supreme. If I could paint such a picture, the canvas would show only a woman looking down at her empty arms. I think if you read the text and don't realize the reality of what it would be for her to give up her son, you don't understand what's going on. We have to kind of identify with that. Because what we see is not mourning as she leaves. We see rejoicing. And to understand that, you have to begin to realize who Yahweh is to Hannah. You have to see, because that's what makes the difference. That's what makes it so contrary to the way our world thinks, the way humanity thinks. How does it actually happen that she can do this and yet leave rejoicing, trusting in God? It flows out of who she is learning that Yahweh... God of Israel, learning who he is. She sings this song or this prayer that expresses who God is to her. And it's one that ripples throughout Jewish history, even into the New Testament, which we'll talk about in just a bit. And and what we see is in this prayer is that she comes to see some things about God, about Yahweh. First of all, she sees he is a deliverer like any other. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. My heart rejoices, she says, I've been delivered. My horn is lifted high. The horn, in this poetic type of rendering, is, is a, a symbol of strength. You can imagine like a, a bull with two horns or a rhinoceros with a horn. This is something that you, it's a symbol of power. And she says, God has taken me from where I was and lifted up my horn. He's exalted me. He's, he's shown me power and given me power. And there's something about her saying, I know that Yahweh is a deliverer because it, you, you realize to know that Yahweh is a deliverer, you have to have been at a point where you needed deliverance. Right? You don't just know that as a fact. She knows it because she's been there. She's been mocked, provoked, and thundered at for years. Humiliated and shamed and devalued. And Yahweh has been a defender to her, a deliverer. We sang today, you're the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings of eagles. That's what she says, I've experienced that in my life. All those words that were said to her, that that cut her down over the years, all those hurtful things. She's learned also that Yahweh is one who hears and knows. Have you ever had someone mistreat you? Have you ever had somebody say things about you that are untrue? How many of you have felt that kind of pain in your life? To misrepresent who you are, to cause you pain... And our first inclination when that happens is to defend ourselves. You see what she knows. And from her words in verse 3, she knows Yahweh is not fooled by the words that other people say. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your arrogance or let your mouth speak such, such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows. He knows what's true about me he hears and he knows it's always comforting in this in, in situations that are difficult and struggling it's always comforting to know that somebody else knows what we're thinking knows what we're going through i was sitting literally at my desk thinking how do i illustrate that concept in a sermon about how important it is for somebody how important it is for us for somebody to know what we're going through and i my phone goes ding ding and it's a text from somebody who will remain nameless but this text said I'm having a really, really hard time in this particular situation, and I just wanted you to know. And I thought, you know what, I I couldn't change that person's situation, I couldn't make it any different, I had no power over it. But there was something that that person felt in the middle of the situation, I do not want to be alone in this. I want somebody else to know. Now, there's a theological reason for that. We're we're made to be connected. We're made in the image of God, who himself is a trinity, who's in a relationship all the time. And so in those times when we feel lonely, when we feel hurt, we just want somebody to hear us and to know. And even in that moment, we just feel better not being alone. And that's what she's saying. God is a God who hears and knows what people are saying. She's seen that he doesn't stop there either. And this is what always was the favorite part of her prayer for me. He is one who reverses a painful reality. That's the part of the prayer that I love. And and probably it comes, um, it's getting close to basketball season, so you're going to have a couple of references here. But one thing I love about basketball season, every year in college basketball, there is an underdog. There's a team that nobody expects to do anything I don't care if I've never heard of them before, but because they're winning when nobody expected it, I'm automatically drawn to these underdogs. You ever feel that way? You ever have a, you know, we're drawn to the underdog. We're drawn to the people who have no chance of winning and and yet somehow they do it. Movies get made about these teams and a few years ago I said, why am I so drawn to them? And then I realized it's because my team is always the underdog, right? (laughs) 95% of the time the team I coach, we're the underdog going in there. And that's why I can identify with that. And I, I love these, these, these verses because what, what, he, what she says is Yahweh is a God who takes the people on top and brings them down, and takes the people on the bottom and brings them up. Just look at the words The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, they don't have any. Those who were hungry, they hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. Obviously, she's not saying I've had seven children, but she who was barren who didn't have any now feels complete. But she who has had many sons pines away, the Lord brings death, He makes alive. life. He brings down to the grave and He raises up. He sends poverty and wealth, He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, He lifts the needy from the ash heap, He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. And how can God do all this? How is God able to to reverse reality, this painful reality? She's gone through that. How can He do it? He says, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. It's His place. This is all His world. This is who Yahweh is. He is the one who sets things as they should be, despite the way we currently see that they are. That's what she has learned about Yahweh. And she ends her prayer by remembering that He is the protector of His people. Verse 9, It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. I don't care how strong you are, she says. I don't care how how impressive you are, how full you think, how how much power you think you have. If you oppose the Lord, you will be shattered. And did you catch that phrase? He will thunder against them from heaven. Remember Penina. Jake said last week that she thundered against Hannah. That was the Hebrew word. And, and in her prayer, she says, you know what? The people that oppose God, he will thunder against them. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of, the, of his anointed. They don't have a king at this time. She's thinking long term. She's, she's realizing God's going to elevate a king one day. I think prophetically is talking about the coming of well Jesus eventually. Hannah's leaving this situation with her son, serving with the priest with joy because of who she knows Yahweh to be. Now the question is, I I, I want us to see it clearly. She's come to this because her experience has led her to this point. This This is where we've got to bring it home. How many of you would like to say, I would be so devoted to God that I would offer anything to Him? I would be, we all, I think in our heart of hearts, we think that's the kind of, I want to be able to offer anything. I want to be able to offer whatever God asks with joy. We'd love to know that when the time came that we could surrender and trust. Well, how did Hannah get there? What was it that helped her? What can we see in this story that can flow into our own life as we walk with God? One thing that we have to realize is that chapter two never happens without chapter one. It's her experiences that shaped her to bring her to this point. James tells us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hannah didn't make it to this point because she paid attention in Sunday school. She didn't make it to this point because she went to Bible college. She made it to this point because she went through the difficult experiences she went through. She got here by experience. Jake talked about that last week, the brokenness, right? She she lived with this honest brokenness and vulnerability. She leaned into the pain instead of running away from it. When When she was devastated because of what Panina was saying to her, she got up, and where did she go? She went to God. She prayed to the Lord and offered. She said, God, I just need this is here. This is my brokenness. This is my pain. It's right here in front of you. You know, far too often when we feel that kind of brokenness and pain, we hide it, we distract ourselves. You know, we see it in addicts. You know, addicts have ways to escape, right? They escape their pain by medicating or whatever it may be, but we do the same thing. We run to Netflix or we run to food or we run to hobbies. We run to somebody. We we run away from our brokenness instead of being vulnerable. It's very often right now we lose ourselves in outrage at the current news (laughs) as a way of focusing outside of us instead of letting what's inside of us come to light. We find villains outside who are destroying the world, and we get all upset about them, and very often it's just a distraction because we won't be honest about what's going on inside. I read a book several years ago, a fascinating book, uh, by a guy named Chris Hedges. Um, not, not a believer as far as I can tell, but a, um, a former New York Times journalist. And I recommend if you're, if you're like me, I can only read one of his books a year because it's depressive, depressing, but he's completely honest. And this book uh, really shook me. War is a force that gives us meaning. And what he argues in this book is this. He says one of the reasons we, I mean, none of us say we like war, but he says one of the reasons we are all constantly in war and one of the reasons that it, we just keep seeming to go back to it Over and over is because we like having somebody out there that is the bad guy that we can fight against. Because if the bad guy is out there and we are fighting against it, what does that make us? The good guy. And he's saying lots of times we're actually addicted to that conflict as a way of reinforcing that we're the good guy. And it shook me when I first read that because I thought, you know, I think that's true. I think. I'm not saying there aren't times that we have to fight, we have to protect, there are things we have to, but a lot of times what drives our anger and our passion is this bad person as a way of reinforcing that we are the good person. It, it distracts us from the brokenness that we have inside. It keeps us from being vulnerable. I see it all the time in the church. We have all these people that are doing so many bad things and destroying the church and very often it's it's just because we're trying to feel better about who we are. It's just it's a distraction. It's something that we use to keep from being honest and openness about our brokenness and the fact that really the problem with the church starts inside of me. The problem with 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 what's going on in the world, a lot of it has to do with my own ego and my pride and my selfishness. But if I can make it about this person or this agenda or this thing that's happening out there, then that takes the focus off me. You know, Hannah could have done that with Penina. She could have been so upset by the words that she said that she took it out on Penina and saw her as the problem. She could have spent her whole life mad at her. She could have complained and griped over and over to her husband. I can't believe how she treats me. I can't. But you know what she did? She took that brokenness straight to God. And she said, here it is. I'm dying here, God. I can't do this. She was honest about her brokenness and her need. She took it and she offered it there until she actually had nothing left. You know, most of the time, one of the reasons we like to find the bad guy and compete or fight against him is because it gives us something to do and we always feel better when we're doing something. (laughs) <laughs> Hannah just came and left it. She surrendered. And, and before she did anything other than surrender, it says she went, she went out ate something, her face was not downcast, and she went home because she had completely surrendered. That's the thing we see in Hannah, with this honest brokenness and vulnerability, and then we see a willingness to trust in that. It says in 118 and 19, after she had prayed, she went her way, she ate something, her face was no longer downcast. Early in the next morning, they got up, they worshipped, and then they went home. Later on in chapter 1, 27 and 28, which we read this morning, she talks to Eli, I prayed for this child, the Lord's granted me what I asked of him, so now I give him to the Lord. And for his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord. It doesn't mean that it was easy, I don't think... This was easy for her, but what she was doing was being willing to trust that the God who had given her this son was the God who would take care of this son the whole way. You know, you only learn to trust by experience. You don't learn to trust by knowledge. You don't just trust and grow in trust because somebody told you you should. You actually have to live it out little by little, And a part of that trust is the ability to live by a long-term perspective. To realize that the God who was faithful at this moment can be faithful a week from now, six months from now, two years from now. She knew that Yahweh was faithful. She even said, the king will come. And everybody's like, what do you mean talking about the king? She, she knew there was something long-term going on. And we see God did not forget Hannah. He didn't. If you look down in chapter 2, verse 18... But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod, and each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord, and then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. You see... One of the things that we all want to learn to trust God, but the only way we do that is by trusting today and then trusting again tomorrow and trusting again the next day. It, it, you don't learn trust unless you experience it over the long haul because there are going to be days when it's incredibly difficult to trust. It's just a reality. There's a story of, of, of um, Joseph sold into slavery, right? Right? And, and, and eventually his brothers come to Egypt and he's the second guy in power and they're terrified of him. And he says in Genesis 50-20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Do you see how Joseph has learned trust over the long haul? It's not been an easy place for him. It's not like he just knew this. Oh, in Sunday school they taught me that God will turn evil to good. He's lived through evil to see it happen. That's how he's cultivated trust by experience. You've got John the Baptist Regarding Jesus, because the, the disciples started leaving John the Baptist and going to follow Jesus, and, and some of his disciples were worried about that. And you know what? John the Baptist said, He must become greater, I must become less. He's learning to trust through the difficulty. And we all want that long term process, that long term perspective. I, I have my first basketball practice tomorrow night, and the key lesson that they, I want them to learn is the way, you get, the way you win at basketball is not making big decisions. It's not by saying, we're going to win. We're going to do this. We're going to do it. The way you win at basketball is by making small decisions repeatedly. I will do this the right way today. I will do it the right way tomorrow. I will do it the right way the next day. And that's the way we learn to trust. We trust today. Tomorrow we trust again. That's what Hannah has done. And that's how she can leave rejoicing, knowing that this God that she has trusted, who has shown up for her, will, will do it again in the future. she left the tent after her first prayer and she waited she had to wait again and again but as we wait and God becomes enough we learn to trust over the long haul and that helps us live like her with what I call an open heart and hands this is the most powerful aspect of her life to me she said to Yahweh you are enough I will take what you give and I will give what you ask and it's a reality of the spiritual life you know what Anybody that's been around the block once or twice with Christ realizes there's these mountaintops when it's like, woohoo, everything's good. This is great. Wow, best decision I ever made to become a Christian. And there are these times when you're like, what is going on? Both of those are a part of life. And it's that trust that we cultivate over the long haul that enables us to live with an open heart and open hands even when life is pain even when it's incredibly difficult to trust in the middle of that. Job 121, after all the things that happened to Job, Job, at this Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That is this long haul faithfulness that God develops in us as we trust today and trust tomorrow, and trust the next day. One of the beautiful threads of Scripture, and we'll close with this, is how we see this play out from here all the way into the New Testament. Because years later, an angel would appear to a young Jewish girl, very, very different situation. She wasn't barren. She was young. She wasn't even married yet. And he would give her news that would turn her whole life upside down. Talk about taking things and turning them on their head. That's exactly what happened to Mary. And what did she say? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Once again, same thing. Okay, God, I'll trust today and hope that you'll be faithful tomorrow. And and here's your homework for today. Go away today in Luke chapter 1 and read Mary's Magnificat, the, the prayer song of Mary. And you'll see that Mary was riffing off of what Hannah said. She's plagiarizing. She would fail some of her work in university if she submitted that prayer because she's taking words and concepts from Hannah and it's coming out in her prayer. You see how Hannah's trust and faithfulness gave words to a little Jewish girl who could have been scared to death because she was going to give birth to the Messiah. Hannah's faithfulness here, this long-term picture, if you're faithful and you trust today, do you realize what God can do with that generation? generation? He can ripple that through generations. Generations. And Mary, just like Hannah, lived with an open heart, open hands. You know, don't, if you're in the middle of pain right now, don't run away, don't distract yourself from it. I'm asking you to take that in your hands and hold it up and say, this is all I've got, God. Please show up for me. And then trust. And realize that through that experience over the long haul, he will develop and and change you into a person who does trust, who has a longer perspective. But it's a day-by-day decision and surrender. Ask him to help you trust. Help, ask him to help you see the long view of what he's doing. Ask him to help you live with a heart that's open and hands that are open to the world around you so that people can see and know and love Yahweh, the God of the universe, the way we do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Hannah and her example in, in two chapters, I'm sure we miss so much of what she actually went through. But help us to understand the process that plays out here and realize that, that where we are in life, it's, it's, she went through situations like this where she longed for help, where she felt desperate. And yet, little by little, she learned to trust and was able to, to live with her, her hands completely open to what you would do. God, help us to to be that way. Help us to learn to trust you day by day in the little things. And over time, make us more responsive to what you're doing in our life and more at peace with the fact that that whether you give or whether you take away, that your name can be praised, that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we're, we're tricky with those closing songs because you just did what I asked you to do. You just said, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I w- You just said to God, I'm going to trust you today, and tomorrow, and the next day. And I, my hope for you is as you take that, whatever it is, that brokenness, that pain, whatever it is, and you're completely honest with God about it, I want you to hear from him, from me, the words that Eli said to Hannah. Go in peace, he said. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of Him. It's my prayer for you this week that God will grant you what you ask and you can live in trust each and every day. Amen.